Hey friends, welcome to the Redeemer Queen's Park podcast. Redeemer exists to help connect Jesus to people, people to community, and community to mission. We're gathering on Saturdays at 3pm to worship God and fellowship. If you ever have any questions, or if we could be of help in any way at all, then please give us a shout at hello at redeemerqp.com. We hope you'll be encouraged as you hear another one of our Bible talks. Let's listen to the next episode. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. And now in chapter 3. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters, and if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you in the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must in turn, or they must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thank you, David. Four golfers were out golfing, lining up their shots, and uh, one guy hit off the tee, and uh, the next guy comes through, hits his, and the third guy had a little different look to him. He was uh, paying attention to what was going on, and there was actually a road coming by, and he noticed that the, uh, the, the cars that were passing, they all had their, their sunbeams, their headlights on. And uh, he actually stopped, takes his hat off, stands there. It's almost with like a resolute solemnity about him. And uh, the cars pass by. He uh, hits his shot and they go off. And the other guys are like, that was, that was, what in the world was that? Like, that was strange. That was incredible. Like, did you know what was going on? Oh, you didn't notice. That was a, that was a funeral. But uh, it was the least I could do. That was my wife. We've been married for 35 years. There's some bad marriages out there. And uh, divorce is the norm now. 
A lot of people getting married uh, today even have the chance of thinking about getting married. Uh, They choose to keep things a little more detached. Why go through an outright divorce? Let's just make it where all we'd have to suffer is a breakup. Back in the 1960s, across Western cultures, the divorce rate was estimated. Uh, It was noted that over 70% of adults were, were married. Now it's about 50%. You understand why a generation just kind of stopped trying. But you think about it, 50%. You know, if one in every uh, two airplanes that crashed, would you choose to fly? Something to it. There's also couples that are technically married, but they're not actually happily married. You know, the excitement, enthusiasm that began with like, just married. Over time it becomes, look, we are just married. That's being lighthearted about something that's very, very serious. Look, when you're, when you're preaching expositionally, when you choose to just take a book of the Bible and just like walk right through it, one of those decisions you make is that you're going to let the text of Scripture set the agenda for you. So we're not going to pick and choose We think this would be particularly flash. Let's kind of go there and let's do that. We're just going to let Scripture tell us what we ought to study next. And here in Redeemer, this is how we like to go. Uh, From time to time, we'll have uh, teaching series that are a little more thematic. We'll just study a theme for a season, but this is what we like to do. Study books of the Bible and just take it straight through. But that means you have to preach some sermons from some hard texts. I just want to tell you up front, um, I do not intend for this to be a hard sermon. No, this is a good and beautiful passage of Scripture. But I do want to say up front that this is a passage of Scripture that many people throughout history, many people who call themselves leaders of God's house, leaders in the church, They have used this particular passage of Scripture and other passages like it to use and manipulate other people and even to abuse and cause lots of confusion. I want to speak to you today with that in view. I intend to correct some things that have been said not in this church, but have been said in other churches and in other contexts to try to bring clarity to confusion. Also, don't intend to speak to you uh, by being cavalier. I open being lighthearted because this is such a, a serious matter that we look into this afternoon. But I do not intend to be cavalier with you about it. I know there are Christian women married to unbelieving men, and there are believing men married to unbelieving women. And this passage of Scripture directly addresses those dynamics. I don't talk to you somebody that thinks that this is foreign to us. I think this is very real. I think it's, it's in our midst. So we need to think about the context of this passage of Scripture so we don't make some errors that other people have made, so we don't trip up and have a stumble where other people have had a blunder before. So think about the context of this passage of Scripture. And let me take you back over the last couple of weeks because we need to get a running start. We're going to need some momentum when we encounter these ideas this afternoon. Over the last few weeks, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, 
It talks about how we ought to live in a fallen world as Christians. The big idea, David brought this to us just a couple of weeks back. We ought to live in the world in such a way where people who do not belong to the way of Jesus, they see the way of Jesus, and there's something about it that leads them to give glory to God. Also, it has a defensive effect so that when things are said about an individual believer or the way of Jesus at large, it doesn't seem to make sense. Because everybody's been studying their way of life and it's so different, it's so foreign. People can't help but give glory to God in heaven. That's the context about what we're talking about here this afternoon. A clear and consistent theme over the last couple of weeks. So the primary way we do this is we, Christians, are going to live lives of beauty and distinction that are going to be compelling to the people around us. That's not legalism. That's something that springs up from the fruit of salvation. God saves somebody by grace through faith in Christ, and the fruit that starts coming up out of that soil are lives of beauty and distinction that draw people's attention up to God. So that other people around, they will be tempted to glorify God in heaven. And then accusations against Christians and against the church don't really make sense because their lives are one of such distinction and beauty. So we saw this in verses 11 to 17. You're like, okay, that sounds bold. How are we going to have it? And then verses 11 to 17 open with this. So here's how we get there. We're going to submit our lives to one another. And a bunch of people living in the modern Western culture that we do are like, I'm sorry, what? Like, that's the great idea? Like, we're going to live these lives of beauty and distinction. We're going to draw glory to God in heaven, and we're going to be able to, like, fend off attacks from the outside. By what? And now, for the third week in a row, we see from the text, from the Word of God, the very way we do this is by choosing to yield to one another. This is what 1 Peter's been teaching us. This is what all of chapter 2 is about. And this is what the beginning bit of chapter 3 is about. So David led us into it in verses 11 to 17 of chapter 2. How, how do we do this? we got to be the best citizens in town. How are you going to be the best citizen? Yep, you're going to choose to submit. You're going to choose to yield your life to the government authorities that God's put over you. You're going to choose to be the best citizens. And there, men and women are told, Submit to a lesser authority in your life as a means of glorifying God, who's the great authority over your life. That submission isn't even necessarily to the worth and honor of that government. It's to the worth and honor of God. And as people around see Christians and see a church choosing to live this, this way, thinking, man, isn't the government kind of out to get those people? Man, they just honor the government anyways. See, it just draws that attention to God. Then last week, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, you're given eight verses, eight verses in, in 1 Peter chapter 2 that talk about how we ought to submit to one another in working relationships. Louise did a great job of coming into this and clearing up what we are talking about and what we are not talking about. And what we're talking about here was servants. This was just a smidge above being a slave, but they were nowhere near the elite ruling authorities. But the parallels to us, like how we would apply the truths here in this text, is we would say, okay, with your line manager at work, or with your boss, to which whom you're an employee, this is how we do it. We're going to choose to yield. We're going to choose to honor, and we're going to choose to serve. 
And you pay attention to what he's doing. He gives us a seven verses back there talking about governments. He gives eight verses, seven verses there. He gives eight verses talking about how to live in servant relationships. And here today in this text of scripture, we're given six verses about how to do this for believing women married to unbelieving men and how believing men can do this with their unbelieving wives. That context is going to be crucially helpful, okay? So let me be clear about what this passage does not teach. Just a really helpful, helpful thing Louise brought us into last week. And I know it's like, man, is he ever going to get to this? Don't worry. When I get to it, it's going to flow through it, and you're going to appreciate it. But here it is. Here's what we're not saying, okay? This is what the Bible does not say. This, this is what the Bible is not teaching, and like where we're at it with Redeemer, like this, this is where we are, okay? This, this text means certain things, and it doesn't mean certain things. Here are some things this text of Scripture does not mean. This text of Scripture does not teach that all women should be subject to all men. Like, that is not in the Bible, period, full stop. And that is not what this passage of the Bible is about. It says, be subject to your own husband. This passage of the Bible does not mean that women are less in essence than men. Paul's gonna come, uh, Peter's gonna come and he's gonna tag this text towards the end. He's gonna say, look, you're equal heirs, equals. You're equals. So all that's going on then is two people that are equals. It's kind of like dancing. And I thought about mimicking some dancing for you here, but you would quit coming to this church. So um, what, what you have in, in, in dancing, somebody's got to lead and somebody's got to follow can't both lead at the same time, or so I've been told. Like, somebody's going to lead the effort, however poor the effort, and somebody's going to follow. It's just what it is. It's what it is. So two equals, one's going to choose to follow the other. This does not mean that women are weak. A weak woman actually couldn't do this. Part of the irony, if you will. Doesn't mean men are uniquely strong. Because a weak man couldn't actually live like this. This doesn't mean you always do, this doesn't mean a woman believing, this doesn't mean a woman in marriage always does what her husband says. That is not what this passage of the Bible teaches. People have used and abused this to say different things. It's okay to disobey a government. Whenever a government commands what God forbids or whenever a government forbids what God commands, the church will and must disobey. Well, so it is in the marriage relationship. There's going to be times, there's going to be situations, there's going to be scenarios, there's going to be requests where obedience or submission or yielding won't always take place, and that is right. So what this does mean, what this does mean is what Otis Ray wrote and Aretha Franklin said. This is respect, what we're talking about. That they may be one without a word is what the author's calling for. That's Greek for don't nag. Let's get into it a little bit. Paterfamilias, I want you to, want you to be able to feel this. You're gonna, need the, you're gonna need to feel the weight of a Roman culture around you for Peter's words to land in our midst. Think about paterfamilias. It was, the, it, was the, it was the code, it was the law, it was the rule of the land when this letter was written into this specific culture. It stated that a man, the husband in a Roman household, he had complete authority over the whole house. So some of our sisters in here, 
not yet married, desiring to be married in your 20s and your 30s, you lived in this culture, your father had complete control over you. It wasn't the kind of place you'd want to live. Father had the power to determine whether a child that comes from mama, whether that child's going to live or whether that child's going to die. Mom and dad aren't sitting around making these decisions. In paterfamilias, one's calling the shot. He looks, he pronounces, and that's it. You speak against them, paterfamilias allowed space for that husband in that culture to beat his wife into submission. That's the context into which this letter lands. So domestic abuse wasn't just like, ooh, did you hear what they do over there in that house? Like, did you hear what's happening in number 17? No, domestic abuse was expected. How else would women know how to listen to what their men have to say? Horrible. Worship was expected to be mirrored. So as whatever, the, whatever God, the husband worshipped, it was, it was just expected under paterfamilias that the wife would just follow the husband around, worshipping whatever God he was into. The women were on a spectrum. One end, there were slaves, and on the other end was men, and women were somewhere in between. And that's, this is the kind of stuff, like, go, go, go look it up. Like, have a go. Hold 1 Peter 3 in one hand and search it into Google on the other, and you'll see how beautiful, how different, how countercultural what Peter was asking men and women to do was. Incredible amount of dignity is being brought into the world with the words of 1 Peter chapter 3. We have trouble seeing it because we look back with all of our history. We look back with all of our baggage. We, we, we live in a time where submission is almost seen as a bit of a dirty word in relationships. But in this, in this time and place, uh, under the inspiration and authority of the Holy Spirit, like a new vision for humanity is coming in to the marriage home. But let's just look right at it. Peter is saying something not to all women to pay attention to for all men. He's saying something not for all married women to all married men. He's very specific. So let's just allow him to be specific for us. Check out verses one through six. He's basically saying, listen, in verses one through six, for a wife of an unbelieving husband, specific instructions, okay? It's not for all people. Now, we as the church, all of this is inspired by God. All of this is profitable. All of this is beneficial. Single men can learn from this. Single women can learn from this. Believing men can learn from this. And believing women can learn from this. Here's what the Bible teaches. In these six verses of Scripture, the instruction basically goes like this. Listen, so you want to win your husband to the faith? You want to see your husband put away those gods, put away that other way of life, and you want to see him one to the way of Jesus and being about what God's about. Here's how you go get it. And when the instruction comes in here, he's basically saying, listen, don't nag your husband into the kingdom. He's saying, don't try to seduce your husband into the kingdom. Don't even try to win him with your words. Try to win him with your works. Specific teaching. So look at verse 2 in particular. 
Men are won by the works of a belief, and unbelieving men can be won by the works of a believing wife when that husband looks at the life, looks at the way that believing wife lives and sees a life that is full of respect and full of pure conduct as it's being described here. I'll tell you, this is a, is a, is a married man. Um, it's, a, it's a lot easier to lead me with, with sugar than it is with vinegar. You know what I mean? Don't look at me. Um, it's, it's a lot easy to be led with words of kindness than with words of accusation. Yeah. And this is, this is what the Bible is, is saying for us here this afternoon. The, the, the way a believing woman can actually be about leading and winning her unbelieving husband over to the Christian faith. It actually isn't going to be by nagging him, you know, going to church again, you come in, knew you wouldn't, you know, like, come on, like that just doesn't create inspiration, you know? But also not by using her looks and using her charm to try to bring him around and then once he's brought around, try to bring him through. If you can win a man with that, you haven't actually won him, yeah? You just kind of caught him in a trance, like you just got him in a bit of a haze and a daze, but he's going to wake up, he's going to come around, and he's, he's not going to ultimately come through. Oh, we need this. So what, is, what, is, what, is, what would it mean to be pure? What would it mean to be respectful? Looking into verse 2, considering the context right here. My sisters in Christ, this means that we become special agents in understanding what he's good at. This means we become scientists with a very narrow field of study. And that's actually the things that by God's grace are going well in his life. And then we become heralds that know how to get alongside and know how to speak things into existence. We know how to encourage. We know how to support. We know how to speak things that are good and true into his life. And isn't that the secret to all good relationships? Coming alongside of each other and every, I mean, just imagine. It's like Gil and I run into each other a few days a week. But imagine if every time I saw Gil, every single time I saw him, I just had a list of three to seven things that weren't going that great, ways he's letting me down, and ways I just really wish he'd level up so I could have a better life. I mean, that, that, that would be like, like, that would be a recipe for a toxic relationship. No, but imagine when we came together, if there's, Look, I'm loving you, I'm affirming you, things that are going well, but at the same time, hey, I noticed this in the last week. If we could do this one or two things, I think we'd all go further together. Like, it's just a, it's just a different thing. If that's how relationships work, that's how we should expect relationships to work. Check out verse four. This is important. Some misconceptions to be obliterated here. It's important for us. It says, let your adorning be hidden in the inner person of your heart. This verse says in no way that women should be quiet and just deal with it. That is not what we're talking about here. This is talking, listen, I understand. Like, I am a man, like, talking to my sisters in Christ. I, I get that, and I am very sensitive to it, but I want to I be clear here. My sisters, this does mean, like, when it comes to how you're trying to cultivate beauty and how you're trying to cultivate winning him over, what are you trying to cultivate? What this is talking about here, this, this doesn't mean we can't 
braid our hair. This doesn't mean you can't have some awesome jewelry. This doesn't mean you can't have incredible clothes. It's just saying those things are fine. They're perfectly fine. Those things should not be the spring from which the beauty comes. Now, there should be something else happening here. And Proverbs chapter 31 gives us a beautiful, beautiful exposition of what this looks like. A woman who's known for her character, a woman who's known for how she is amongst men, and a woman who knows for how she is amongst women. He's saying this is what we're actually going for here. It's been said that iron sharpens iron just as one man sharpens another. A lot of men kind of rip that verse out of the Bible and act like we own it, you know? Oh, this is a brotherhood verse, you know? This one. Get pints and talk about life. You know, like whatever like the thing for different guys is and you know, we're going to go away and we're going to camp and we're going to confess our sins to one another. Like, sure, you can do that. You just also don't have to, like, steal this verse from everybody else. No, like, iron sharpening iron, like, makes us better. That's a marriage verse, too. And the best things that happen in my life in this marriage come from Elizabeth. There are ways that other men in this community know me and love me, but they don't know me like she does. There are ways that other specific men around this community keep up with me and look after my life, but they can't level the wrecking ball the way she can. Now, isn't it, isn't it that in relationships? It's actually those times and those places when, when people don't sit by passively and spinelessly and just let the thing happen, but somebody who loves you enough to step in no matter how fast the momentum on the situation is moving and say, listen, I'm just going to tell you, like, we need to talk. The clarity that rings out of that bell can be life-altering. So women across the room, but specifically sisters in Christ, this would mean then that we can cultivate a heart where we see Christ as exalted and on the throne And we function from that place where Christ is exalted. Christ is on the throne. We're not worried about trying to nag him in a weekend. We're not worried about trying to to seduce him to the faith across the season. We're actually going to try to win him over without even using a word. In verses 5 through 6, it's this strange bit, right? I mean, now, if, if this isn't like, Okay, man, how are you going to get away with this in Queens Park? Enough. He goes straight Old Testament with this stuff. You know, just leave it on this side of the cross for us all, will you please? But no, we're going all the way into the Old Testament. We're going all the way back into the book of Genesis. And now he's going to bring up the relationship between between Abraham and Sarah. And he's like, so be like this. And everybody's like, what? Like, she's calling him Lord in this verse. And it's like, yeah, hold that up. That's a great idea. Like, this is what we're going for. No, but even this is, is good. When the context is, is, is tight and right, the, the whole thing tends to make sense. Remember, this is about God taking women who are married to unbelievers and giving them something to work with, something that's going to be durable, something that's going to be sturdy. They can actually worship God and win people to the faith with. There's only one place in the story of Abraham and Sarah where Sarah calls him Lord. Specific place in the book of Genesis. It's called a theophany. Many people think that the Trinity took on a physical form. The Trinity's here. Many people think that this is the place 
where the Father, Son, and Spirit are all present together in the Old Testament, standing before Abraham. They make a promise. We're going to go and we're going to come back this time next year. You're going to be with child. She laughs. And as she laughs, she says, am I going to, is this going to be me? Am I going to have the pleasure of this as an old and worn out woman? And then she says, my Lord, speaking to her husband in this playful partnership sort of language. But even there, we don't see Sarah bowing down to worship some fallen man. How ridiculous. None of that would be asked of any one of us as well. But we do we do see something that's really beautiful. Sarah, who's equal with Abram, choosing to yield, choosing to honor, choosing to defer, and even uses a formal title here, all standing on the ground of mutual submission, working out in a playful tone inside of marriage. And the Bible does this. Reasons, I, I, I don't know, but it just happens. So, so here it is. Six verses give an instruction to women for what this looks like, and you have one verse given to men. Now, I think I know why we have that in this particular spot. In Paterfamilius, the, the man was already strapped with all the power. He already had all the authority. Paterfamilius, like, he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. So all the other verses are actually about having to give power and instruction to those that don't have it. Employees within a company, like people under a government, wives under a husband and paterfamilias. So it's actually only going to take one verse, and it's going to be a mighty verse. It's going to give the husband the kind of perspective he needs to love and lead. Listen to this. Not every husband to every wife. A believing husband to an unbelieving wife. One verse of Scripture for how that husband can go about loving and leading in the home in such a way where she is one to the faith. Can I remind you, all of Scripture is, is loaded with meaning. All of this is beneficial and, pro and profitable for us. Young women can learn. Young men can learn. Married women can learn. And married men can learn. So likewise, husband, this continual looking back technique that he's doing, his teachings for a husband married to an unbelieving wife. Here it is. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. Goes on to describe this vessel. This vessel is commonly understood to be our physical bodies. I think it's ridiculous to think of men as like these like bulls or something. You think of women as like fine china. That's, that's, that's useless. We never get the fine china out. We, like, we need some everyday stuff if we're going to use something like that anyway. So how in the world could a woman be understood as a weaker vessel? Again, do not intend to be cavalier, light, or shallow with you. What are the options? A woman could be understood to be weaker emotionally, intellectually, morally, or physically. So just work through the list. We know that there's actually no way she would be understood to be weaker morally, right? And I'd much rather have some women leading the way morally compared to a lot of men. Not really going to be the case that she could be understood to be weaker emotionally. Women have a way of actually being more in touch with their emotions than men, not less. So another mark where we'd want them to lead the way. What about intellectually? I don't know. Like 
least looking amongst my friends. Like, I'm not looking to the intellectual strength and capacity of the blokes that I'm rolling with, at least. No, I'm looking there to the other as well. It could only, it could only be physically. Physically. Yeah, like the, uh, the Bible teacher, Jen Wilkin, would say, it's physically. Because one to the other, there's less testosterone, less muscle mass proportionally, and it doesn't matter if you're a black belt in karate. If you're nine months pregnant, you're not going to be mu- worth much in a fight. I think it's physical. And it's physical in the sense that we're these treasures hidden in these jars of clay. We're all ultimately frail. We're all ultimately going to turn to dust. We're all ultimately breakable. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, and Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, they all get us real close here. So what this means is that when it comes to a husband tasked with trying to win over an unbelieving wife, he's going to have to play away from his strengths. And his strengths are his physical strengths. So whereas the, the, the women in the room, they needed in coaching and they needed encouragement. Listen, don't go with your strong suits. What are your strong suits? They're going to be your ability to speak and your ability to get dressed. Hello? <laughs> but these men, they're going to have to play away from their strong suits as well. And what are those strong suits? It would be a man's ability perhaps even temptation to use physical force to lead an unbelieving wife into the kingdom. Paterfamilia would have said, look, you can just beat your wife into submission. And here this word drops, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. And it's hard to imagine something that would have been more countercultural than this. Bible saying, look, I know it's the law that you can beat her into worshiping whatever God you want to. Don't do it. Don't do it. And this is how you're going to win her. In a world where women are being beaten, men are laying their hands on women in the most despicable of ways. This is how you will win your unbelieving wife to the faith. You're not going to touch her like that. I don't want to go all the way into it with us, but all the way at the top of the verse, he actually does tell her to tell him to touch her. He actually tells him to take that Old Testament sense of the word and he knew her. How you doing? And he says, Look, know her, pursue her, and don't you use your physical strength against her. It's the kind of thing that women's hearts around this room, but uh, now, even now, but like back then, hearts, hearts float to this. Are you kidding me? This is available. He'll pursue me, but he won't abuse me. He's going to get alongside of me. He's going to live with me in an understanding way. I had no idea. This is what the Bible is calling for. The word for the brothers in the room, though. These are God's daughters. And he takes them seriously. So seriously, where if you or I lay our hands on his daughters, he says, I'm not listening to your prayers. 
This probably happens a lot, doesn't it? You know, batter the wife around a little bit and kind of run over here. God, this business deal coming up, I'm really going to need you to come through. He's like, what are you talking about? We're not talking about your business when you treat her like that. This is God's heart. This is what he's after. Marriage is difficult, yeah? There wasn't near enough amens for who's represented in this room, but we'll come get that next week, I guess. While marriage is difficult, I speak very clearly to the sisters in the room of all stripes, married, unmarried, single, married to a believer, married to a non-believer. He lays his hands on you physically. He has forfeited his rights to have you show him Christ through submission. You call the police. You come see the elders at this church and we will help you and we will get into it with you. There's nothing in this that tells a single woman or a married woman of any stripe, any sort, of any kind, you have to be bossed around by another man. Not what the Bible says. That is not what you will ever hear us encouraging you. Now, it's encouragements. How, how can a believing woman pursue that unbelieving husband and see him fall out of love with the other gods of the land and come under the worship of the one true living God? How can a believing man show Jesus Christ to an unbelieving woman? Yeah, well, everybody around, all my friends, they just smack my wife until she worships my God. I'm going to do it a different way. I'm going to love her. I'm going to pursue her. I'm going to know how to sit with her. I'm going to know how to understand her. And I'm never going to lay a hand on her like that encouragements. And we can imagine, if that was true in that culture, then we can think together, what does this look like today? So watch this. I'm going to speed up. The author is about to shift the focus from the different relationships all the way up to the faith family. So thinking back now, first, how should we relate to governments, men and women choosing to yield and submit together? Not because we don't have dignity, but because we do have dignity. And when we choose to live in this way, our dignity is actually what gets highlighted and put on display. Then servants, anyone in any sort of boss and employee relationship, different ways to set the character of Christ on display. We're going to choose to defer. We're going to choose to be led as long as it doesn't lead us into sin. Then specific coaching for marriages, women and men alike now back to everyone. Verses 11, verses 8 through 12. Then it comes into the faith family as a whole. And that's what scripture does after we've had to listen to some coaching here and listen to some coaching there. It comes back for all of us. And it's thinking about all of us together. How should we relate? How should like married men relate to married men? How should married men relate to unmarried men? How should women relate to men across the line? And I've spent too much time on the other stuff, so I'm going to go quick. It says, bless. It says, bless people so that you may obtain a blessing. It says, unity of mind. It says, sympathy for one another. It says, a tender heart. Because if you're a Christian, you know what it's like to not have it all together. If you're a Christian, you know what it's like for your life to be such a mess and, and, and such a frustration that you know what it's like not to be on the same page with people. So now that you do, have unity of mind. You know what it's like to miss the mark, so have sympathy with other people. You know what it was like when you had a hard heart towards people and people had a hard heart towards you, so, so, so have a tender heart. And the word there is actually humility. 
Look around people in situations and say, I don't know what that is, but I, I just imagine it's got to be a lot. It's got to be tough. Let me get alongside. And sympathy and goodness in this passage, they actually lead us into that place of flourishing. So look, going quick, let's apply this on the spot right now around the room. How do we apply to scripture? We read something and we think, what does this mean for thee? What does this mean for we? And what does this mean for me? Asking the spirit of God to speak to us across the room right now. Let me just point out a few things. What does this mean about God? God is our creator. God has good order. God has good plans. God knows the path of flourishing. He's created the world in such a way where if we live within the way he's created the world, we can actually thrive. We can actually flourish. He has a way. And he has tender-hearted strategies for how we can go about winning one another within marriage relationships. And did you notice divorce wasn't an option? Notice he takes the covenant so seriously that the option isn't get out, the option's endure. The option is to win. Next, you think about we around the room, single women listening to this, thinking, okay, if that's what it looks like to be married to an unbelieving man, how can I begin cultivating these godly traits and these godly disciplines right now? Like, how am I asking God to actually cultivate this in me? And how does this even lead me looking for a spouse? Thinking of single men around the room, thinking, okay, if that is how godly men are supposed to live in a culture that they feel like foreigners and exiles. How can I, as a single man, be about cultivating these habits and these dispositions even now? How can I be asking God to shape me and to form me for a woman that will even want to be led by me? That's what we're asking around the room. And specifically in marriages to unbelievers, for believing women to unbelieving men, not nagging into the kingdom, not seducing into the kingdom, and for believing men to unbelieving women, not bullying into the kingdom as well. So it's an invitation for all of us together to reflect the beauty and the character of God. Why? So that they may see our good deeds and be tempted to give glory to God in heaven. Taken in that context, you can hear how people choosing to love someone who's different than us that reminds us of Christ, who loved us all the way through. So band, Gil, come on up. Let me give you this word, and I'll be out of your way. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, speaks of the, the Father's face being on you. And depending on how you know the Father kind of determines how you hear that verse. The Father's face being on you. There's some of us, we might be tempted to hear that and think, oh, there it is again. Like we're just being kind of like coerced into obedience again. The Father's watching, don't screw up. There's a very different way to hear this. There's a way to imagine a, a loving father looking after children that are just learning to do things for the first time. It's the, it's the face of a father looking at a child that's just learning to walk. What is the face of that father? Is it stern, is it overbearing, is it demanding? Is it a face that says, you better watch it or I'm coming for you? Or is it a face of kindness? Is it a face that understands you're weak and you're learning to grow and I'm gonna do everything I can to make you strong? The face of the Father is on the righteous. For my believing sisters in the room, the face 
of your Father is on you. For my believing brothers in the room, the face of your Father is on you. And he's smiling. And he's kind. And he knows that this world is hard. That's why he sent Jesus to show us how it's done. And Jesus comes. And he actually lived this life of submission that we're all called to on the spot. Looking at our lives, there's such a mess, everything out of order, sin wrecking the world. And Jesus looks at us, and he doesn't look at us and say, your life for my life. Jesus looks at us and says, I'm going to give my life for you. And he rearranged everything in his life to serve us, to appeal to us, and ultimately to win us to himself. Submission is part of the way. We see it in the very life of Jesus. So let's trust in Jesus. And if we're feeling discouraged, let's look to the Father. And when we look to him, we'll see him already looking at us. The face of the Father is on the righteous. And that is comforting news. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you were looking at us. We need it. We need the comfort of your face. We need the warmth of your face. We need the assurance of your face. Thank you, God. Thank you for sending Jesus to be our Savior. Thank you for being clear with us about what it looks like for us to live your way in this world. Across the room, we ask for help. Help to cultivate these characters. Help to cultivate these virtues. Help to be faithful. Help to love. Help to lead. We ask for your grace to win win souls. Lead us through. We ask for your glory. In Jesus' name.